Hey, everybody, we got a great episode of This Week in Startups, Apple Maps, iOS 15 upgrade, kind of tips their cards about what they're going to be getting into in a major way in the next decade. The SEC's chairman, Gary Gensler, is explicitly uh, letting us know that cryptocurrency will be regulated and his intent. He gives a really great interview with the Washington Post, and there's really two very important quotes we'll go after and make some predictions about what crypto will look like over the next five to 10 years. I think it's going to be legitimized. It's going to be taxed. Uh, and then uh, our feature interview with the founder of Picasso. Picasso is a really brilliant uh, real estate idea. You take a home, you split it into eight uh, parts, uh, eight units in an LLC structure, and you allow people to buy into that. And we could, me and seven of you could share a ski house in Tahoe or Park City. It's a great idea. But the NIMBY folks in Napa are going wild. They're really upset about this startup. And so it's a bit controversial, like many innovative things are. And just a little programming warning. Uh, we had a dead redwood on the property that had to come down before it fell on somebody's house, mine or my neighbors. So you might hear a chainsaw in the background. It's just for a minute or two. Uh, and we did our best to, to get that out uh, in terms of using some sound mitigation. Sorry about it. It's a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Zendesk qualifying startups can join the Zendesk for Startups program and get six free months of Zendesk products. You'll also get access to an exclusive community of startups for advice and connections. Visit Zendesk.com slash twist today to get started. LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to LinkedIn.com slash this week in startups. And MicroAcquire, the startup acquisition marketplace. Start the right acquisition conversations at your own pace. Get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. Say goodbye to brokers and meet your ideal buyer today. Go to try.microacquire.com slash twist. Okay, and our first story, Apple Maps for iOS 15 has been upgraded and I think it's a pretty clear tell, a tip-off, a clue as to what Apple is working on very diligently, I believe. Uh, who knows if it actually results in a product and when. But if you've upgraded to iOS 15, which is a major, major, major iOS update, and there's a lot of buzz about it, a lot of interesting features, Facebook, I'm sorry, FaceTime being one of them. Um, and we've been talking about some of the other features like their uh, Safari email relay I talked about yesterday where you can basically tunnel and people don't know what you're searching for. Well, let's take a look at this uh, Apple Maps for a second. If you're watching on YouTube or the video podcast stream, you can see some great screen grabs and they're really highlighting uh, landmarks like Madison Square Garden. Okay, that's nice. They did a little extra rendering on it, but you immediately start to notice that this feels like you're playing in a video game, doesn't it? It looks like the Matrix. It looks like this is an actual 3d world well of course it is you are clicking on the 3d button you see this 3d rendering and uh, here's koi tower a very interesting look um they lit it up um and the golden gate bridge a nice burgundy uh or whatever orange that is I, I, you know i always hear people say red and then i hear some people say it's burnt orange uh the golden gate bridge but i think all bridges should be painted a bold color like the verrazano bridge between staten island and bay ridge brooklyn where i grew up Imagine if that was painted a bold color, if it was blue or something. Uh, here's Lombard Street, the famous uh, snaking street in San Francisco that a bunch of people go and drive down and they wait an hour to drive down the street. The Salesforce Tower looking great. Uh, so if uh, you're listening live, why is this look so good? Why do these 3D renderings, uh, why are they investing in 3D 
so much. When, in fact, 2D is better when you're driving, isn't it? Like, this is nice to look at, but it's kind of unnecessary. And in fact, it's not as good of an experience as using a 2D uh, overhead model when you're driving and you need directions. Like, this is obviously for a reason. So if you're in the chat room or you're uh, on Twitter, go ahead and give me your theory of why Apple has enhanced Apple Maps in iOS 15 to this crazy level with these 3D models. Uh, augmented reality, uh, Lita says, mm, yeah, maybe, but there's something more important. And there, Patrick got it, the Apple car. Very clear uh, that Apple is taking their Maps product super seriously because once you have Maps and you have everybody with these phones, you know when a phone is moving over 35 miles an hour, it's either somebody in a car uh, or they are on a really fast bicycle. So Apple knows from your phone uh, when you are uh, driving in a car. Now, how many iPhones are there? What's the fidelity of GPS? Okay, they've got a Maps program. You click uh, when you use Apple Maps. Would you like to give us feedback to help us refine maps. I'm guessing that that's somewhere in the terms of service. And they could be without us all explicitly knowing it, but I think you would maybe uh, assume that this is happening, refining the maps based on your GPS data. Somebody can look that up if they want in the terms of service. Does Apple refine the maps product when you're using it based on your GPS data? I'm assuming they do. Now, what that means is they've got, instead of having cars on the road, they have phones on the road. Those phones are iterating on the Maps program, just like Teslas are live on the road and are getting data, or Uber and Lyft and FedEx trucks, Amazon delivery drivers, excuse me. They are all providing data to refine Maps. And uh, it may not be cameras like on a Tesla where they have video of every junction and every weird moment when people slam on their brakes or turn too hard. All that data is being put into these models to build these 3D worlds. These 3D worlds are what self-driving is made of. That's why Apple um, is basically taking a page out of Google's playbook and Tesla's. Let's use, uh, Google uses Google Maps data, obviously, to inform Waymo and Waze data. You can be sure it's informing Waymo in some way. And obviously, Tesla has been very clear that their million plus cars are on the road. Some number of them have the self-driving, whether it's been paid for, or turned on or not. And that makes it amazing for them to refine it. And in fact, back in 2017, Tim Cook confirmed Apple was working on autonomous software and systems. We know that we're focused on autonomous systems. It's a core technology this is a quote that we view as very important. We sort of see it as the mother of all AI projects. It's probably one of the most difficult AI projects actually to work on. Now, Apple is super secretive. When they do mention a project and they expand and give reasons or they give this sort of color or texture, as he does here about uh, autonomous systems, that means they've got it going on when they say, hey, we're going to pull the string on augmented or pull the string on, you know, TV and see where it leads us. Yeah, that means they were going to launch Apple TV, both content and the product. So we know that this is going to be a big deal. And in December of 2020, Bloomberg reported that Apple shifted the leadership team in their self uh, driving car unit, which is called Titan giving the reins over to top AI executive John uh, Gian Andrea. Hope I pronounced that correct, John. I'd love to have you on the program, but Apple people are not allowed to go on podcasts and talk about what you're working on because I would ask you, hey, what's next? And you'd say, we can't talk about what's next. So um, people gave Apple a really hard time uh, about software and 
how poorly they made uh, their apps and their software. And actually, I think they and previously how poorly they did cloud um, and, and any kind of uh, cloud based service like remember mobile me how terrible that was compared to iCloud. iCloud is actually pretty great now. And so is uh, their services business, uh, whether it's Apple Music, delightful product with a lot of nuance in it. So I think that's what we're seeing here is Apple is really getting much better at cloud and much, much better at building software. Apple Maps was a disaster. It was when it was released, you can type in Apple Maps launch and you can find all the things that were wrong in it. And now you're starting to see they're taking it seriously. Does this mean they're going to actually compete in cars? Um, Yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's a market where they're going to actually have great success. It's a lot harder than people think. But I think people said that with mobile phones too, when Apple just made PCs. So I would never uh, underestimate Apple. They uh, seem to work on things for, you know, a decade. And um, when they do release them, they tend to be pretty darn good. Um, Sometimes it takes them five or six versions, I will say. The Apple Watch was one of those products. I don't know if you have an Apple Watch, but it took about six years to get good. Okay, let's go on to our next story. Zendesk is the go-to tool for customer support. We all know that. They also offer a suite of tools designed to remove the difficulties of sales software. So get Zendesk's suite of sales tools plus their industry-leading support software for free for six months as part of Zendesk for startups. I'll show you how to do that in just a moment. But I want you to know that you'll also get access to Zendesk's community of startup founders and partners, and they'll even offer dedicated onboarding guidance and support. You know Steezy Studios, it's one of our portfolio companies, and they sell software to learn how to dance. Hundreds of thousands of people are using that software, and they want to make sure everybody has a great experience with the software, obviously. So through a combination of Zendesk Explorer and their ticket tagging system, Steezy is able to track which features their users are most excited about and then relay that to the product team. So they're using customer support to make the product better. So for Steezy, Zendesk creates a positive relationship with their members and empowers them to contribute to Steezy's growth in return for some awesome dance moves. Get six months of Zendesk for startups free at zendesk.com twist. To qualify, you must have under 50 employees. That's reasonable. And you must have raised a Series A or below and be a new Zendesk customer. A couple of conditions there because they're giving you something really valuable for free. Six months of Zendesk for startups. Start building the best customer experiences at zendesk.com slash twist. All right, next up in the news, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler tipped off how he is thinking about regulation in crypto yesterday in a live interview with the Washington Post. You remember the drama two weeks ago we covered it. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong was calling out the SEC in a really aggressive uh, uh, thread about Coinbase's new Lend product. Uh, This is episode 1279 if you want to go check it out. Lending as a product meant you could take your crypto holdings and get like a six, seven, eight percent, who knows, uh, return on your crypto. That was something the SEC was concerned about. And uh, Coinbase quietly announced on Friday that it was canceling the launch of their Lend product in an update uh, to Armstrong's original post. So it looks like the general counsel's advice eventually got to Brian and like, hey, pump the brakes. Let's not start a war with the SEC. The SEC is generally trying to keep people <laughs> from losing their money. That's basically why they exist, so that people don't get scammed. And now, will they protect 100% of people from scams? No. But if they make an example out of, you know, but 5% or 1% of scams out there, it's going to decrease the number of scams. It's going to highlight for people that they should be careful with their money, just like people should be careful when they're walking through 
you know, a parking lot in the middle of the night, right? Like you're taking some amount of risk in your behavior. Investing in crypto is like walking through a parking lot, you know, in an abandoned building on the worst side of town, you know, in the, in the most crimeful neighborhood. <laughs> Be careful, folks. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who could scam you. So last week, Gensler said in testimony before the Senate Banking Committee that crypto exchanges such as Coinbase should register with the SEC. That's a no brainer. Uh, and yesterday, Gensler, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Gensler was interviewed by the Washington Post columnist David Ignatius on a live stream. When asked about the SEC being proactive rather than reactive in the crypto in crypto regulation, Gensler basically said crypto had gotten way too big to be considered a project and it must be taken seriously as uh, a financial industry, something I've been saying for a long time. Like if you want to call it a project, then keep the maximum amount of money in the crypto project under 10 million or something or under a million dollars and then it could be a project and then have some reasonable regulation uh, of classifying projects based on their scale. And as they reach more scale, they could have more regulation. I think this is just common sense. So uh, let's watch this uh, 90 second clip. I'm going to talk on the other side of it, but it's a really important clip to listen to. I don't think it's a, it's a good idea to wait until there's a spill in aisle three and we hear in the loud speakers, the loudspeakers overhead from the Washington Post and your competitors clean up in aisle three. And then those of us in the official sector have to rush in and we've got congressional hearings and we're sort of like, well, why wasn't anybody worried there was going to be a need for a, you know, clean up in aisle three? And I think at two trillion dollars, five or six thousand projects that uh, it would be better to be inside investor consumer protection inside the uh, tax compliance and any money laundering and financial stability. Now, if we don't do anything and there's never a spill in I three, great. But I think history tells us private forms of money don't last long. History tells us that investment contracts outside an investment protection remit, people get hurt, that if we have lending platforms that are outside either the securities perimeter or banking perimeter, that usually they get excess leverage and we have financial stability uh, issues. These stable coins are acting almost like poker chips at the casino right now. Uh, so add to the Wild West analogy. I mean, we've got a lot of casinos here in the Wild West and the poker chip is these stable coins. And so I think there's just a lot of uh, kind of warning signs and flashing lights that we might have a spill in all three and I'd rather get ahead of it. I mean, could you ask for a more reasonable take? Uh, this was exactly the common sense stuff we've been talking on this podcast and people are giving me a hard time. Obviously, like crypto people are very passionate. Some of them have toxicity as their core belief system. You know, the way to deal with anybody who points out that crypto is got a bunch of flashing red signs, as Gary is saying here, you know, is to attack them, right? And it's an actual psychological technique. Give any criticism, get attacked. Give any criticism, get attacked. Put the laser eyes and put Bitcoin in your uh, bio, get lots of love, get lots of followers, right? And so this is a psychological operation that is being performed on you by the crypto community. And you can be sure that there are people with hundreds, maybe thousands of Twitter accounts pumping all of these different crypto coins, NFT projects, etc. And they're using peer pressure, and they're using making fun of you and have fun being uh, poor, which is a way of using fear to motivate you to finally put laser eyes and say you're pro Bitcoin. I said all the time, listen, we own Bitcoin, we got a lot of it. But these are concerns, you can 
like, you know, a certain project, but still have concerns about it. And I think the irrationality of the uh, Bitcoin community specifically with their toxic approach, which is not all of them, obviously, there are some people who are just holders, but there's a, you know, a vocal uh, minority who are pretty toxic. I think that group is what's leading to all this regulation. Candidly, this regulation should have been here a couple of years ago. Uh, but Gensler's quotes here are pretty good. Those stable coins, I actually described them as poker chips earlier. And that, you know, these could potentially be problematic. We talked about Tether, we talked about the New York Attorney General. And how stupid is Gensler going to look if Tether falls apart? New York uh, Attorney, New York's Attorney General took action on it. All of these like weird bloggers and you know, people who are on Twitter handles, anonymous accounts like Bitfinex to people we've had on the program. If all of those people, CoffeeZilla, were on the Tether thing, and if Tether were to collapse and Gensler didn't do anything, he's going to feel really dumb. And he's going to look like he didn't do his job. And he explains that exactly here. You know, we're going to look really dumb if we uh, don't, you know, this, this spill, uh, this IL3 spill happens and we didn't anticipate it. He would look really dumb. <laughs> he's correct. And so getting ahead of it, doing regulation, uh, and the crypto community, let's face it, growing up and acting like adults, um, and maybe saying, yeah, we started as pirates, we started as Ronin, we were these, you know, crazy uh, rebels, but we understand there's a lot at stake here. We don't want individuals to lose their money. We don't want people to get scammed like the OpenSea employee was front running the market and buying NFTs. He does have this other quote in here that is a, a real money quote that just drifted by. And I actually didn't catch it the first time I watched it when he says, history tells us that private forms of money don't last long. He's not wrong. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Uh, for a little history, uh, a Coindesk article noted that Gensler could be referring to wildcat banking era of the mid 1800s when banks in remote areas of the US distributed their own worthless paper currency. And these banks were literally in the Wild West. Uh, the currency was backed by bonds and other types of worthless securities. Sound familiar? <laughs> Who owns commercial paper? <laughs> Nobody knows the value of that commercial paper. Nobody knows the details of it. Tether. Uh, so this led to the National Banking Act of, of 1863, which essentially uh, made this practice illegal. When asked if the SEC needed additional help from Congress to rein in crypto, here's what he said. One minute clip. I'll talk to you on the other side. I think that we have robust authorities at the Securities and Exchange Commission, and we're going to use them and continue. I think it would be better if the platforms that are trading securities, the platforms that have lending products, who have what's called staking products, and I'm glad to describe that for your listeners, but where you actually put a coin at the platform and you earn a return, that they come in and we sort through figure out how best to get them within the perimeter. Uh, we'll also be the cop on the beat and bringing those enforcement actions as well. Working with Congress would help because there's a lot of coordination by and amongst uh, our uh, financial regulators. I would let the banking regulators speak on their own, but we're working right now at the, under the guidance of Secretary Yellen and working on um, a report around stable coins. And in the world of stable coins, I do think that there would be some help from Congress. All right, there you have it, folks. Uh, you know, um, I, I think, yeah, the SEC would partner with Congress on reigning in these stable coins. That makes sense. Uh, you know, it's been so high profile now the last six months of people doing this tether investigation and how 
you know, smarmy that all looks and, you know, the scale of it is really what is concerning when they have 60 billion of these coins out there and nobody knows who owns what. <laughs> it starts getting really, really uh, sketchy. Um, I think for the people who are in crypto, who are in it for the long haul, you know, they've been in it for 10 years, and they want to be in it for 20 more. All of this regulation is great. Because if you remember, ICOs uh, really damaged how people looked at crypto and interest in crypto went way down after the ICO craze. Then people forgot about ICOs, and then they started getting back into crypto again. Now, if these stable coins, if they were to go down, maybe you'd see, you know, Bitcoin lose 80% of its value or something, or, you know, the whole space become uh, really regulated because now it's at a scale where it could start having some impacts. Uh, some people asking about uh, Evergrande. Uh, yeah, we I've been talking about Evergrande on this week in startups for at least two months. And I brought it up maybe three or four weeks ago on the All In podcast. And I, I put it on the docket for last All In podcast. Uh, and David Sachs, my partner, was saying, oh, you know, I think we talked about that already. I should have been more forceful and said, you know, we've got to talk about this. Because then on Monday, <laughs> the stock market crashed. Uh, or I should say a crash, it went down like three or 4%. And it was all because of the Evergrande, you know, uh, coming to a head, basically, and, and that company becoming clear that they're going to be insolvent on some level. So uh, crypto is going to grow up, whether they like it or not, people are going to pay their taxes, uh, people might have to pay a tax on crypto, I think that's coming next. Because if it's cheaper and better to own crypto than own American dollars, that's going to be a real problem for America and for the planet, because I think America will have less influence in the world. And we are the influence of democracy in the world, as opposed to our uh, major rivalry with the authoritarians uh, in China. And so we really do need to win for humanity. I think it's existential. And I think people in leadership probably share my okay boomer <laughs> opinion that uh, crypto can't replace the US dollar at this point, or that'd be really bad for humanity. I know that a lot of people believe that'll be great for humanity. The problem with it is it's going to level the playing field where authoritarians are going to have, you know, a, a lot more control over the planet. And I think we want America to have a lot more control about it as flawed as we are. I think it's better that we have more influence on planet Earth than China does, or at least keep some large amount of it. So I, I could see us literally taxing cryptocurrency at a higher rate to make it look more appealing to consumers to hold dollars. I think that's eventually where this leads is that there'll be a tax on crypto that incentivizes people to hold dollars instead until we have a USD, you know, stable coin and you can trade the American dollar uh, you know, on some blockchain that is controlled essentially not not a decentralized blockchain, which I know for people is anathema to crypto, but I think that's what's going to happen. Okay. Uh next up on the program is our interview with the founder of Picasso. And we will be having the uh, NIMBY Napa crew, uh, I think, on the podcast. They got into my DMs, and uh, they are replying to me. So please do uh, come on the program, NIMBY Napa folks. Uh, and here is the interview. Listen, right now, LinkedIn is going to give you $100 credit towards your first ad campaign. I want you to go to LinkedIn.com slash This Week in Startups and get that hundy right now. Now. Why would you use LinkedIn marketing? High quality leads. We all need leads. We're all running businesses here. My leads, startup founders. Your leads might be SaaS enterprise. It might be CFOs. It might be CMOs. It might be CTOs. Who knows? Everybody's got a different product, but everybody is on LinkedIn. We all know that because we all use LinkedIn every single day. So if you're planning to launch a new campaign, 
You know your audience, your team is excited, and everything is going according to plan. We've all been there. Except you have that one thought in the back of your head. How can I be sure that my acquisition campaign will drive high impact leads for my sales team? Well, with LinkedIn ads, you don't need to guess because when you advertise on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to engage you. LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn. You know this, it's very simple. So with 30 million companies engaging and over 71% of professionals using LinkedIn to inform their business decisions, LinkedIn can help bring your growth to the next level. Don't wait to start achieving your brand and lead gen goals. Get a $100 ad credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign at linkedin.com slash this week in startups. Once again, linkedin.com slash this week in startups for the hundy, no spaces, no dashes, and terms and conditions apply because they're giving you a hundy. All right, I am fascinated by this next startup. And the founder's name is Austin Allison. The startup's name is Picasso. And I heard about it because I was listening to Stay Tuned with Preet. Uh, and it's one of my favorite podcasts, shout out to Preet. And I heard an ad for it. And I was like, this company is a brilliant idea. What do they do? They find a second home, which is a really considered purchase, and it's not accessible to everybody, and they're underutilized. And people don't like second homes being bought because it takes inventory away from people who need housing, and we're in the middle of a housing crisis. So what does Picasso do? Picasso takes that home, and they split it between eight people, and they each get whatever, 40, 50 days at the home, and they do all of the management of the home. But it is not a timeshare. You're not buying some virtual usage or paying in advance for hotel rooms. No, you own an LLC or a share of an LLC, I guess an eighth, a sixth, whatever it is. Um, and so I thought, and, and also, by the way, you can tell that this is a brilliant idea because a bunch of NIMBY people in Napa are on NPR complaining about it and protesting what Austin is doing. Welcome to the program, Austin. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. All right. You heard my little preamble. Um, what did I get right about what you're doing? And uh, was there anything I missed? Well, yeah, I think you got most of it right. I'd love okay. to just give you the background and the idea, though, to provide a little additional context and sort of fill in the pieces. Sure. Yeah. Does How'd you come up with the idea? Yeah. But let, let's not, I hope it's not like media training, like a media training spiel. No, no, no. I'm going I'm to give you the, you know, okay. the, the real spiel here. So have you been you to know, media training, by the way, when you get a company uh, that raises a hundred million, they send you to media training, right? Yeah, they do. They oh, do. God. Yeah, it's, See, it's that's informal, the bane of my existence. So, okay, you got to <laughs> promise me you're not going to use that meeting training nope, on this podcast because no I can identify training. it in 10 yeah. seconds. No, right, I know Austin, you can. Tell me the totally backstory. unfiltered, totally unfiltered. <laughs> so look, the facts are I'm a, I grew up in real estate. My dad was a carpenter, so I was swinging a hammer by the time I was three or four years old. Right. And when I turned 18, I started selling real estate to pay my way through college and kind of fell in love with the industry. And that led to my first company, which was a, a digital transaction software called Dotloop, which we sold to Zillow in 2015. And I stayed on there for about four years. Thank you. And along the way, uh, my wife and I, it was about, I guess it was about seven years ago now, in late 2013, my wife and I were like most families who couldn't afford a second home. We never grew up with second homes because our, our family didn't you know, have a lot of extra money. Um, but we dreamed of owning a second home. And in 2013, we were able to save up enough money to use as a down payment on the second home. We actually had to rent the home out on Airbnb, which was you know, a whole nother experience that we could talk about. But the owning the second home is a really life enriching experience for us. It, 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 what I learned about the experience is that 
we didn't just buy a second home. We bought a second community. We bought, you know, rituals and memories. And, and some of our best friends are now in Lake Tahoe. Like Lake Tahoe is now a really integral and important part of our lives. And it was made possible because of that second home. So having experienced this firsthand and also recognizing just how out of reach second homes are because they're very expensive, because they tend to be in very expensive markets and they're highly underutilized. The facts are that most second homeowners only use their home five to six weeks a year, which means that these second homes on average sit vacant 10 to 11 months per year. So, so 80 to 90% underutilized, yeah, or absolutely. you have to go run an Airbnb, which means yeah. now your second home, which is supposed to be where you relax, now becomes uh, a, a business you're running. And it, so for some people, yeah. that might be fun if they have spare cycles. But if you're busy and you got kids, that could be a bit of an albatross. Exactly, exactly. So I've been thinking about this for the last seven or eight years about this opportunity and this problem. And really, my, my goal was twofold. It was how do we find a way to make better use of all these underutilized homes to empower more people to realize their dreams of second home ownership? That was like goal number one. But goal number two was really around utilization. You know, I've always been, you know, obsessed about making better and more efficient use of things. So that's what yeah. led to my first company, Dot Loop. It was about more efficient real estate transactions. And it just drives me nuts to think about all these homes that are sitting empty because an empty home drives up housing prices because it takes inventory off the market. It constrains um, and challenges local businesses because the bars and restaurants in these towns during the shoulder season don't have people to frequent the restaurants. It's bad for the environment because mm. every home that sits empty is another home that needs to be built. So it was those two things, accessibility and utilization yeah, that, that I, I mean, was trying to solve for. And that really is what Airbnb and Uber did well too. You know, when the reason Ubers were so cheap was because you were taking cars that would be dormant 95% of the time. Cars are even yep. less used than second homes. And you could put them in the market to be used another, I don't know, 10, 20% of the, the month. And yep. they could be used for shuttling people around. And then th some people don't have to buy a car. And then there's less cars, which means there should be less congestion or traffic, and there should be more parking spaces available, yada, 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 yada. And that right. is one of the great things that technology does. So on a mechanical basis, you create an LLC. Picasso owns no ownership in it. You take no ownership. Correct. Once it's fully sold. So Got it. To, to finish the thought on how we created the company, one of the things I discovered is that there actually was a solution out there. So I, I appreciate you know, all, all the, the compliments up front about creating this idea. But to be honest, we didn't invent the idea oh. of co-ownership. I wish we could take credit for it, but we can't. Co-ownership has been around for decades and decades and decades. It's actually very common in almost every market, you know, oh, wow. including every market that we operate in. Now, usually when people co-own homes, it's family members or friends that are buying property together. So and like, who manages all that for them, like an attorney? Well, they, they do it yourself. So ah, like if, if, if you and me, yeah, if you and me and two of our buddies decided we wanted to own a house in Lake Tahoe, we could go do this on our own. We would form an LLC. We draft an operating agreement that defines how we all, you know, coordinate access to the home. And we would either divvy up responsibilities or we would hire a property manager, kind of like Picasso, that does the management Got duties it. for us. All Picasso is doing that's different is we're taking this old practice that's been around for decades and we're applying a service and technology layer that makes it easy for people to co-own properties with one another. And you don't have to know who the other owners are. You can own property yes. now with people who you don't know. 
and Picasso serves as the intermediary to eliminate all of the, you know, the hassle. Yeah, and but I noticed that when you go to the site, you can see you have some inventory there that you've, I guess, pre-bought and that you're selling in fractional units. Um, yep. Now, the, and once the, it's sold through though, Jason, what I was going to say is we do hold the property for a short period of time, but once all the co-owners are aggregated, the owners own 100% of the property and we retain no ownership. Uh, how do you make money? We make money by charging a service fee. So like this home I'm sitting in right now in Fort Lauderdale is a Picasso. It's a four and a half million dollar home. Whoa. With Picasso, you can buy one eighth of it for $650,000. And within that $650,000, about 65,000 of those dollars is Picasso's fee. So all the work that we do to aggregate the buyers, to carry the cost of the property for a, a period of time, design, furnishing, you know, all that stuff is baked into our service fee and it's baked into the price for the people who, who buy so into a property. So on a house like that, um, if I do 650 times eight, that's 5.2 million. You said it's a 4.5 million now. So you make $700,000 for finding the house, renovating it, staging it, uh, putting all the furnishing in, doing all the legal. Uh, and to operate your business. Uh, yep. So that's nice. It's nice to make 700 grand, I guess. Uh, but it's not really a Silicon Valley startup if you're just going to make 700 grand per house. So how did you get all these venture capitalists to buy into you getting uh, venture capital? Because they would say, well, you get a one-time fee of 700,000. What is the yearly fee to maintain it? And, and yep. how did you convince venture capitalists to get on this ride? Yeah. So to clarify, it's 12%. So it, in that case, oh, it wouldn't be 700. It would be about, you know, 500 or so. Um, but so the primary revenue stream that we have up front is, is the service fee, but we have recurring revenue streams that, that go into the future. So management fees, we charge about $100 per one eighth interest per month to manage the service. So that works out to about $10,000 per home per year for the Got oversight and, and the program. Um, we also um, offer financing. So oh. about 70% of buyers who purchase these, these homes end up using financing and that flows through Picasso and we make a little bit of money on that too. And then um, the, the last piece of it is resale transactions. So oh. when somebody goes to re like, let's say you were to buy a, th this interest for 650 and then, you know, three years from now it's worth 800 and you decide to sell. Picasso would effectively be your real estate agent on the listing side. And we so you generate get 6% a percent or something. Yeah. 10%. Now a lot of that goes to third party agents. So we work with third party real estate agents on every transaction, but we would get the, the listing side of it. And then we pay third party agents on the buying side of the transaction, which I think is 3% each side. About 3%. Yeah. So you make a, a little extra, like another 20 grand or something. So you exactly. have modeled this and this is going to be a large, robust business. Yeah, we think so. And our investors think so, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, is there a huge some other business though that you see next? Like, no, maybe. Okay, great. It. So you think this is the this sustainable is business? Absolutely. Yeah. Micro Acquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that cuts out the middleman. Basically, that means they help startups get acquired efficiently. If you've ever had to buy a company or you tried to sell your company, there's all these people in the middle. They're not looking out for you. Micro Acquire is looking out for you. To date, MicroAcquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and has facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars in closed deal volume. Over 100,000 buyers are on the platform right now. It's amazing. I signed up for it. I paid for it. Now they're an advertiser. It's crazy. Thousands of startups are currently listed for sale on the site. 
and they've had hundreds of successful acquisitions so far because they vet all of the deals they're putting up there and they vet all the buyers. Founders get free and instant access to these 100,000 trusted buyers while staying totally anonymous. This is not like an open marketplace. If you're a founder looking to sell, MicroAcquire is free, private, and involves no middle men. On the other side of the marketplace, buyers simply pay $290 a year for access to the platform, like I did, because I might buy some stuff for Inside.com. MicroAcquire helps startups find buyers. Simple as that. They'll help you start conversations that can lead to an acquisition in just 30 days for free at try.microacquire.com slash twist. Try.microacquire.com slash twist. Go ahead, founders, and check it out. And if you're an acquirer or you're looking to beef up your startup's footprint, you, you really should just pay the 290 and peruse and see what you could buy there. It's a really cool service. When I explained this to uh, my wife, she said, well, how do, who gets Christmas? So who gets Christmas? Who gets, the, the, who gets Ski Week for the Tahoe yeah. house? When we're all, if we all did this and it was besties in the Bay Area and it was Tahoe and all our kids have the same Ski Week and we all have the same winter break, are we all sitting there like trying to snipe on day one to get Christmas or how do you manage that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the number one question that we get from, from buyers who, who um, you know, talk to our sales team. And the answer is that we've come up with a, a really, you know, slick and innovative software. We call it Smart Stay, which is basically a series of rules and algorithms that distribute the calendar fairly and equitably amongst the ownership group. The net of how it works is that everybody gets a little bit of all the calendar throughout the year. So if let's say that four people own a, a house together through Picasso. So your 25% would entitle you to 25% of the peak season, 25% of the non-peak season, and 25% of the holidays. And the algorithm's designed in such a way that no one person is able to dominate the whole calendar. But you are you are correct in the sense that if, if seven families, all who have kids in ski school in Tahoe and go the same six weekends every year, if those people wanted to buy a home together through Picasso, this, this wouldn't be you know, an optimal fit because everybody would want to use the home at the same time. But that's not representative of how most people own property together through this model. Because I'm curious having with this model, if you could select an algorithm, because another possible algorithm is uh, Christmas break is worth three points. Um, you know, the shoulder season is worth one point and these non-premium holidays are worth two points and everybody gets a certain number of points. Now, I know that sounds complex, but everybody at the beginning of the year could state their intention for 2022 or for, you know, however you do it, you could do it for 18 calendar months. And I might say, you know what? I'm flexible. I don't have kids. I don't care about ski week. So I want to get extra weeks. And then other people might say, you know what? I'm in it for Christmas. I'm trying to get the, I'm willing to spend the three points for Christmas. Have you thought about that? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. We've absolutely thought about it. I mean, we have we have a you know super talented team of people who think about this all day long, and and we get feedback from our owners on a regular basis. And the the scheduling algorithm actually does sort of solve for the problem in the way that you described. It just doesn't do it with points. Got it's it. found the optimal ratio of you know number of of stays that you can have reserved at any given point in time, um, and and it balances this out with the other owners, but. It, I mean, it works really well. Our average property is utilized over 90% of the time. You know, you see, this is the key. This yeah. is the key. This is your high ground with these NIMBY. Oh, God, I hate these NIMBY people. But this is the high ground. Because what these idiots who are so NIMBY and so up in other people's business, 
This is America. You buy a property. It's your property. It's not your neighbor's property. The neighbor owns their property. They don't own your property. If you want your property to be shared by eight besties, that's your decision. You get to stay in your house and make your own decisions and build a fence. And you don't have to look over the fence at my property. And these maniacs attacked you in Napa saying you were destroying the community. When in fact, you're saving the community from having a bunch of empty houses. Because it's 90% utilized. If eight people buy a house in Napa, that means you don't have to have eight homes or six homes. Let's say, let's say half of them couldn't afford this without Picasso. Picasso. Then you would have four houses instead of one. It's massively more efficient, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very efficient. I mean, I, I, I can't speak for what's on people's minds or, or Of course or you why, can. Why you, they, got, you got into it with them. You, why, you they, why they, they why told they you why. The they said you're they destroying do, the sense of community. Are yeah, you destroying when, the sense of community in Napa? No, I mean, definitely not. I mean, what I can, <laughs> what I can tell, what I can share with you is facts, Jason. Yeah. And here are the facts. Like, you know, the first, first off, I, I think, I do think it's important to acknowledge that Real estate is a sensitive topic, you know, right or wrong. Real estate's a sensitive topic right now, particularly in second home destinations. And the reason why is because there actually is a real affordability crisis happening. Yes. And it's most pronounced in second home markets because of all this new demand and the shortage of supply. So I, I get why people are frustrated about housing, but you're correct that the way that we help to address some of this, this housing crisis that we find ourselves in you know, there's really only two solutions. We either build more homes or we make better use of existing supply. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, it's just basic economics, right? Supply and demand. Supply. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Might it be, just going to flow to theory here, that these affluent owners in Napa, the same ones who blocked native son George Lucas from building uh, you know, museums for the community and who blocked George Lucas from building a studio up in the area up there north of the Golden Gate Bridge. These maniacs are so rich and entitled that maybe the idea that somebody who could only afford one eighth of a Napa home would be showing up for their vacation in Napa. Might that have something to do with it, you think? Uh, again, I, I can't speak for I can't speak for what's driving or motivating, um, you mm. know, the, the, the people who, who don't really like our concept. But what I what I can tell you again, back to the facts, what I can tell you is our average home price is four million dollars. So when we when we first started hearing the feedback from the community, I mean, the number one thing that we heard was that we were taking homes away from the local workforce, <laughs> affordable homes away from the local workforce. And so disingenuous. We, and, and, we, and, to, and we did buy one house for $1.2 million, which was twice the median in the, in the neighborhood that we bought in. We acknowledged, we heard from the community, acknowledged that, that that probably wasn't the right property for our model. And we chose to sell the house, you know, outright. And a second homeowner, I, I think, actually ended up buying it. But all of our homes now, like our average home price is $4 million. So these are not affordable homes. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, these are homes that would have otherwise been purchased by second homeowners. If you just look at the numbers and the percent of people who are purchasing these multi-million dollar homes, they're second homeowners. And so we think it's a much better use of housing stock 
to consolidate demand into fewer homes. But the other thing that we think is really powerful is the, the sort of the transfer of the demand that's happening through this model. All the people who are coming into, into the Picasso model, like these are, these are not families who just woke up like last week and decided that they wanted to own a second home. These are families who had been dreaming about owning a second home for a long time, many years right. in most cases. And most of them are actively in the market working with a real estate agent or shopping on Redfin or Zillow for a, for a home already. And if it weren't for Picasso, many of these second homeowners would be buying median priced homes. They would buy the 600K, $1 million exactly. home and take it away from a school teacher, exactly. a firefighter, an accountant, somebody who you know is getting priced out of these markets. I think that That's these right. NIMBY people have the worst intent in the world. I think that they bought their houses early They've seen them appreciate in value and they delight in there being limited inventory and they delight in there being no other option because it makes their most prime asset, their home, their second home that they got in early appreciate in value. And they are so, so anti-community that they don't want certain demographics to be next door to them. I think that's what a lot of this is about. I'll be totally honest. And I think they want to protect their investment, which is reasonable, except these are homes. And people need a place to live and people need a place to have their second homes. They got particularly vicious with you in, in Napa. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the, uh, and I know your media people and PR people don't want you to talk about this, but they were pretty, they got a little edgy with you up there. Tell us what did they do to try to stop you? They made it pretty personal. Yeah, well, I, look, I, I should clarify that it's not everybody. Like we have... We have, I mean, we're in 25 destinations now across the U.S. and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are, are really welcoming their new neighbors with open arms. Like I was just in Aspen last week, uh, for the, the food and wine festival where, where we, we had some activities going on for Picasso. And I actually got to meet one of our neighbors. She came out of her, she, she basically came over to our property, introduced herself, and she opened up by saying, Thank you so much. These homes surrounding me, I've been living here in Aspen for 30 years and all these homes on my street sit empty for 10 months per year. I'm so thankful to have neighbors and friends and members of the community that, that previously weren't here. So it's not everybody, but you're right that, in, you know, some, some neighbors aren't quite as welcoming. Um, and they and basically put up like signs and cars. And like yeah. banners that Picasso was destroying Napa and Sonoma. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've so we've had threats threats to burn down our houses. We've oh had, yeah, you know, that was the crazy thing in the NPR story. Yeah, that was like because once Wait. I found out about you, I googled you because I was going to invite you on the show and I DM'd you on um, Twitter, I think. And then I saw the NPR story and I was like, oh my god, they threatened to burn the house down. This is how deranged Maybe. these sociopaths are. These NIMBY sociopaths. I mean, we, we've had threats that we should be shot. Literal physical violence. I mean, yeah. not only property violence, but shooting you. This is deranged. And you know what? It is because uh, you won't say it. I will. They think that people who are not white people are going to come to Napa and own an eighth of a home who couldn't previously afford it. That's what this is about. I'm sorry. And, and they're just also concerned that maybe if you're a more affordable solution, when they want to flip their house, they won't have a buyer because somebody say, oh, this is more efficient. But they should be thinking, these NIMBY sociopaths, what they should be thinking is, what kind of society do I want to live in? One where people can't afford homes and people have to suffer and, and have to live an hour and a half away 
and, and we all this inventory dries up, we need a solution. Picasso is a great solution. Take the win, Napa. Uh, other places yeah, we we think yeah yeah i was i was gonna say we we definitely think it's a great solution i mean it'll it'll take time for people to understand any new concept as you mentioned in the opening jason like anything i've ever been a part of or seen that was doing something new and and interesting faces some resistance and it takes time for people to fully understand and appreciate the concept and i I think co-ownership is one of those things it'll just take some time and you know we're we're going out of our way to try to to, to try to communicate as well. Like, you know, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem here. Like as an example, you know, and, and one of our properties this weekend, we, we hosted a pancake breakfast, mm. you know, at, to, to get to know our, our owners, our chief revenue officer stayed at the home. He hand cooked every single pancake <laughs> by himself. He handed out flyers to every neighbor on the street, as well as the neighbors on the adjoining street and just invited them over from nine to 11 a.m., just to have a conversation and get to know us. And guess how many people showed up? You tell me. Zero. Uh, fascinating. Zero. So, yeah. well, you know, we're trying to have the conversations. Uh, we want to be part of the solution, but we also realize that, that it'll take time for this, this concept to be understood. How many homes have you done so far? Uh, we don't share the home count. I mean, what I could share well, is some- range. Is just, it, are you over 100 yet? Um, what I Closing can share in? is we've got a couple, a couple million people that visited our website last quarter, and right. that's up a, a couple hundred percent year over year. Uh, we just shared for the first time ever, we shared our revenues. You know, we're tight with this stuff because we're a private company yeah, and that's sure. one of the advantages of being private. But, you know, we, we, we finished Q2 at more than a $330 million annualized run rate. And we just Whoa. started, you know, a year ago. So growing really quickly, we're in about 25 destinations, as I mentioned, uh, mostly in the US. And we also just announced that we're expanding to Europe. So Spain is going to be our first market. Oh my God, we, I can't wait for that. Yeah. I was thinking about buying a house in Florence. When I was in Italy, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get an apartment in Florence. I think I love it here so much, or maybe in Tuscany. And I was on your website. I think that's when I invited you in August to come on the pod. And I started looking at it. And I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to talk to my besties uh, from the all in pod and like maybe Chamath, Sachs and Freeburg. We find some $5 million place, we chop it up and but if you do all that and you find the place in Tuscany for us, totally, I don't want to yep. deal with like finding the yep. place and managing it. And that's not the fun part. I'd rather give you the whatever totally. 50 dimes a year to do all that. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I mean, buying internationally has an additional layer of complexity beyond yes. the obvious property management details, you know, because transactions are different from country to country. So it's part of mm. our job to have the right people in market and and make that transaction. Why'd you easy. go with so Why'd you go with Spain? Are you, is that your favorite? You like Spain over Italy? Is this a personal choice? No, I'm I'm founder actually privilege? if if it were my <laughs> choice, if we had such thing as founder privilege here, I would have chosen Italy. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm fond of Italy. Yeah, there I just, is founder uh, privilege. We, I can assure you, you can use well, it. <laughs> yeah, we we that don't, we right. don't really, <laughs> we don't apply it here at Picasso. But to answer your question. You know, the, the main thing that influences all of our markets is where our buyers want to be. I mean, at mm. the end of the day, Picasso is effectively a service provider for all these owners, you know. All right. I'm going to look over to the side here um, and I'm going to take two questions from the audience. So let's yep. let's take two questions from the audience. Uh, Charbax says, can home sharers, home sharers, what do you call the people, fractional owners, the owners, you call them owners, right? Yeah, we call them co-owners. Co-owners. Can the co-owners rent out their shares on Airbnb 
via Picasa? That's an interesting question because that is something the NIMBY folks are super, super sensitive about. It's their property. It's a, they should be able to do what they want, correct? Or not correct? It's, it's, it, well, it, it is a great question. So the answer is no. Picasso owners are not allowed to rent their property out. It is their property and they ultimately have complete control. But when owners sign on, they sign on to an operating agreement, which has a set of shared you know, rules and principles that mm -hmm. the owners agree to. And one of the things that they agree to is to not rent their property out. So if an owner were to rent their property out short term or long term, uh, Picasso has the ability to basically enforce and, and stop that from happening. Got it. Um, and uh, if somebody, let's say they own it, can they cancel their arrangement with Picasso? Like if we get to year 10, and I'm like, you know what? We don't need you anymore. We want to run ourselves. So they can't cancel your. Oh, they can the hook cancel for their with Picasso as the yeah. Like, can the ownership group cancel their management agreement yeah. with Picasso? Yeah, yeah, totally. Got I mean, it. It, Jason, this is this is true ownership. Like, if Picasso were to dissolve and go out of business, hypothetically, yeah, like you, it's just you and a small group of people who own a house together. You know, mm. so yeah, you have complete control. If Picasso fails to deliver on our service, the owners could go find another property manager. Okay, here's a great question. Another great question. Can a single owner buy multiple shares? I was thinking this myself. Yep. It's pretty common, actually. So our average home, I would say, has five to six owners. We allow mm. a maximum of eight, mm. but several owners will purchase a quarter, or in some cases, we've seen even three eighths. We wouldn't allow somebody to purchase more than 50%. If somebody wants to purchase more than 50%, we would recommend you just buy the whole home. For sure, buy the whole home. And uh, somebody says, if I can't rent out my property, not buying it, sorry. So that's interesting. You're probably not the, the person for this market because what the people in this group are saying, see, I can answer this for you, I think, is uh, you don't want to have random strangers destroying the that's home. Right. When you run an Airbnb, yeah. which I did for a little while on a property I owned while we moved to another property, um, somebody threw a party there and did $8,000 worth of damage. I had to file a claim with Airbnb. They had to charge a person. It was a whole big controversy. And we wound up getting paid eventually, but it was like a massive headache. People don't want yep. that nonsense in this class right. of owners. Um, and if yep. you want that nonsense, you really uh, shouldn't, uh, I think, go for this level of home. When are you coming yeah, to Canada? Okay, you had something to say? Sorry, yeah, I, I would. I, I think this Airbnb point is an important one because this is this is kind of like almost the anti Airbnb. Like this, yeah. this is for owners and families who are not just there for the weekend. Like these are people who are spending five hundred thousand to a million dollars that are own the property. They're committed to the community. Like I'll, I'll give you an example just to highlight the difference. You know, we recently, unfortunately, you're probably aware of this. Uh, you're in the Bay Area, right, Jason? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you're probably aware of the South Lake Tahoe fires that just happened, yeah, right? Terrible. And, you know, th think about if Imagine if you're a renter, like an Airbnb renter that had stayed at an Airbnb a couple years ago in South Lake Tahoe. Do you think you would be inclined to go help with what was happening, you know, with the, the fire situation? Probably not, right? Like you have not. no skin in the game, no ties to the community. In Picasso's case, we saw this. We found a charity that was helping with the cause. We wrote a check as a company to support the cause. And then we emailed all the owners that we serve in the Tahoe region and encouraged them, uh, told them that we were doing this and encouraged them to strike a check as well. And we had something like, I don't, I don't know what the total number was. It was like five or 10 owners stepped up and wrote a check. 
to, wow. to support this local cause. So like the families who are buying these houses, these are, these are not frat parties. You know, these are like sure. families with kids that are interested in being part of the community, interested in meeting their neighbors. Um, and, and, you know, they, they love the town that they're buying in. And it's a very different mindset when somebody is an owner with significant skin in the game, when compared to a transient renter that has no skin in the game and is just there for the weekend. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about buying a Tahoe place, and I see you have five places up there now. Um, now, you've already bought these places because you have that holding period. So if I were to buy one of these this week, like right now I'm looking at one, it's like 645 dimes. I could afford that. Uh, if I bought into this, could I be using it in like two weeks? How long? If I, you know, assuming like I yeah. wire you the money, when can I like get keys? If it's available, you could be using it this weekend. We wow. can close and I mean, we can close in, you know, 15 minutes. Like the, the process is that easy. That is so amazing. To, uh, as yeah. we wrap here, what, what about cleaning and that kind of stuff? Do I get charged for that? That's included in the fee. How does that work? And you can only do two weeks yeah. in a row, right? Um, I'm not sure why you have that rule. Depends but how much. It depends how much you own. So during the peak season, that's one of those rules in the algorithm uh, to ensure that somebody doesn't, you know, block all the, the dates. But during the peak season for one eighth interest, you're entitled to two consecutive weeks. You're allowed to have more than that in the off peak season. But if you own a quarter, and this is one reason why somebody would buy 25% instead of 12 and a half percent is because they could have a full four weeks during the peak season. But we handle every detail including cleaning, everything from bill pay to maintenance to design and furnishing um, to when you go to resell your, your interest at a future date, we make that process easy for you too. And the way that it works is the actual cost to run the property, things like taxes, insurance, utilities, um, all of those things are just uh, passed through to the owners and split pro rata with no markup. So if you own one eighth of the home, you just have to pay for one eighth of the operating expenses. Man, I'm looking at this Donner and I'm like, you know what? I kind of like it. Now, if I hold on a second, I'm an influencer. I got a following. Do you have an affiliate <laughs> program? If I bring we could folks, probably work something out. This we would be killer. Work no, this out. is a killer yeah. idea. If somebody makes the commitment and then they bring people in, they should get a little taste. A little taste, maybe. That would be a killer idea. An affiliate program would be great. I can't get any special treatment as the host of this week in startups. I love it. <laughs> but affiliate programs are great. Listen, continued success. I love what you're doing. I'm super sad I'm not an investor, but I think you're going to be super successful at this. So congratulations. You're already getting competitors because when I tweeted about how brilliant I thought this was, I had somebody from South America and somebody in Europe are like already doing the same idea, exactly the same idea, exactly the same website. So uh, put your put your uh, foot on the gas and, and keep going, brother, because this yeah, is a killer oh, we idea. we are. We are. I love it. All right. We'll Thank see you, you all Jason. next time Appreciate on this Bye-bye.